0: We began a, a series uh, last week and uh, called Overcome and Assured. Uh, it's a study through First John. And um, it's an important study. Um, it's an important study for a lot of reasons, and this morning certainly is one of them. Um, as Jay read that, I hope he picked up on a couple things um, that we're going to talk about this morning. Um, but one of the things I kind of want to say on the front end and really really kind of emphasizes the importance of this text. Um, And and we need to see it rightly. We really do need to see what God's saying here, if we're going to understand our life, if we're going to understand salvation, if we're going to understand how to live the day-to-day challenges we face. I love the way he begins verse 5. He says, this is the message we've heard from him. This isn't something John made up. John didn't come along and say, hey, i got an idea. Why don't I write this group of people, this, this, this little message here? No. He said, this is the message we declare to you. And this message we receive from him. And so I hope we receive that, this message, from him. This is his message. This isn't mine. That's been my prayer all week. Lord, help me to hear you. And uh, whatever out of my mouth is not of you, just may it be quiet. And so this is his message, and he's declaring it to you and I. And so let's, let's hear it well. That God is light. And he starts this message with an authoritative word from God on God's character. God is light. And this is foundational to what he's about to say. And so I don't want to fly over it. The message is essentially about the character of God at the very least begins with the character of God. John takes his readers to foundational truth about God and he teaches based upon God's character, what fellowship is, what it means to walk with God. And to understand what it means to walk with God, we need to come back to God's character. And he says, God is light. Now in the Bible, light has a lot of connotations, a lot of associations. Now we know right off the bat that light, by definition, is the absence of darkness. And so we're not surprised to read what we do there. But God is light. It speaks to God's nature. Nature. Light. Now the Bible speaks to God's light being this idea of moral purity at times. It speaks about God's revelation being light. Uh, Thy word is a light unto my feet, a lamp unto my path. Light also speaks to this idea of God's glory and splendor. As a matter of fact, when you see God show up, oftentimes there's brilliant light that accompanies it. His glory and His splendor and so light has a lot of associations in the Bible. But just as light reveals and purifies, I think is John's idea here, so by God, by His very nature, illuminates and purifies and reveals. And here's an important part, and it's one of the things I hope you'll take with us, because if we can understand this, we're going to understand the text better. His nature determines the conditions of fellowship with Him. His nature determines the condition of having fellowship with Him. So if we think about walking with God, we must come back to His character, that He's light. And the conditions of following Him is we walk in the light. Why? Because He is light. And so His character, His nature determines the conditions of fellowship with Him. God is light. It's a penetrating description. Of the nature of God. He's absolute in His glory. The physical connotation of light. He's absolute in His truth, the intellectual. And in His holiness, the moral. And because of that, it's obvious that in Him, there is no darkness. There is no darkness. And if light's the perfection and moral purity, then it would stand to reason that darkness is moral evil. If God is light, then fellowship with Him is dependent upon moral purity. And if God is light, then those who truly know Him should walk in the light. So there's a clear connotation that as a Christian, he's writing to Christians, predominantly, that if you're going to say you're a believer, and because God is light, you should walk in the light. It's a contradiction to say I'm a Christian and walk in darkness. Why? Because God is light. And that that God that you've proclaimed, that God you've come to faith in, that God you have a relationship, He is light. And so God's character is the foundation of all He's about about to say. And He moves now from this statement about God's character. That God is light. In Him there's no darkness. And then He gets to these three claims. And in each claim there's a contrast. It's beautiful teaching, the way it flows. Now we kind of have to go back a little bit. Last week, remember, we talked about this elite group that had surfaced. These docetists, these Gnostics. Other commentaries you might hear, if you read commentary, you find the word cessationists. It kind of refers to this elite group that proclaimed, first of all, that they were superior in their knowledge. Uh, we would say super-Christians uh, might be the way that they looked at themselves. They decided in their mind that flesh was evil and so anything in the flesh, anything in the material world was evil. Thus they believed as their mind worked that Jesus could not have come in the flesh because all flesh is evil. So they denied the humanity of Christ. And some of them even taught that Jesus came down but he was a spirit man. And at his baptism the spirit came to be with him and right before the crucifixion left him. So he couldn't really say he was a man. Because he wasn't a real man, and the only time he had the spirit was in that small window of time, according to them. And then he was crucified. And so there was some warped teaching about this, about who Jesus was, but there were some, also some other things these heretics said. And predominantly, their heresy revolved around sin. It wasn't just about who Jesus was. Because if you get that messed up, we're not surprised I got this whole idea of sin messed up. And what's interesting is the claims John addresses are directly related to the claims of this elite group. And so what he's trying to do is instruct his hearers, these dear children, as to what sin is. And his instruction, though, is tied to these erroneous beliefs. And so we're going to look at that because it's important we understand the context here. And so another part of this heresy is these views on sin. And there's kind of a twist of three different views he has. And some I'm amazed at John's teaching. One of the views, one of the twists of sin that these heretics had put forth was that you could claim to be a Christian and still live in your sin. In other words, you're not responsible for it anymore. You can live like you want. Boy, that sounds kind of familiar. <laughs> right? I mean, our culture says you can be a Christian and go live it up. After all... I'm forgiven. And so this isn't a new mindset that we have in our culture today. It's been around for a while. And so they said, you know what? We, you, can, you can come to Jesus, and once you come to Him, you're good, and then it won't really matter what you do. Kind of live it up. Kind of becomes a free-for-all at that point. But that wasn't the only twist they had. Another twist they had is the idea that you could come to this like, plateau in your life. In other words, you could come to a place where maybe you've been a, a Christian for a lot of years and maybe you were familiar with uh, the Torah and you maybe you went to the synagogue a lot and, and, and maybe you had this idea um, of this experience in religious things and you could come to this plateau in your life, they said, where you're not sinning anymore. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> I don't know when that plateau is, uh, but I'm, if there is one, I would sure like to get to it. Um, but that's what they taught. And that because you could come to this plateau, and that there were, you wouldn't be sinning anymore, you would have nothing to confess. So they taught. And so John's claims are going to address that. But there's a third twist, and that is we never sinned to begin with. Somebody else came up with the word sin. Everybody's basically good. They're just in the wrong environment. And I've had this conversation with people who said, listen, it's not sin. It's just that, more, that culture has determined the moral norms. And so if we put too much stock in it, we're not sinning. We're just kind of adhering to what the society says is wrong. That's a rejection of sin. And that's what they did. They're rejecting that there is anything called sin. And thus their conclusion was, we don't have a sin problem. And so that's what these dear children of John are starting to hear around him. And so his claims specifically address that. And those who maintained a detachment from sin, they needed to be refuted. John's words, among other things, implies that these proponents had failed to come to terms with man's actual nature. So John is writing them to address these false claims. Let's look at these three false claims. 1 verse 6, If we claim to have fellowship with Him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie, we do not practice the truth. And so here's the claim, we claim to have fellowship with God, and yet it's okay to still walk in darkness. That was the whole idea, That's one of the things that they were putting forth, but John comes along and says, if we claim to do that, he's going to get to a contrast here in a minute, the idea is, is it possible to live in sin and still have fellowship with God? That's the question on the table. Now this word walk is an important word. The idea of walk, he says, if, if we say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, this idea of walk is a present tense. It, it's commonly referred to as a person's moral activity. And these dosisists, these Gnostics again, believe knowledge was a key to life, that righteous living really didn't matter. And so John's refuting that with their claim. And many today claim to have fellowship with God, even though they live a life of sin. And in this thought, sin is unimportant. But John's saying if you believe this, you're believing a lie. And you're practicing, and he goes on to say, and you do not practice the truth. The implication would be you're practicing the lie. And so John's saying right now, if you adhere to this claim, You're not having fellowship with God. It doesn't break our relationship with God, but it certainly breaks fellowship with God. You and I cannot go through our life sinning and say, God and I are good. No, you're not. There's not fellowship with God. There's broken fellowship. You can't claim to have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness and think that everything's okay. According to John, no, you lie. You do not live by the truth. There's some real problems going on here. Cindy and I had gone to um, this place, these people we didn't know. We went to pick up a cabinet. It was a black cabinet, and uh, it was very interesting what was going on in this dynamic. Sometimes you, you meet people. We didn't know them before, never met them before. And, uh, and it was a fairly large thing to lift, it was pretty heavy. And so the uh, husband comes out, It's a pretty big guy. And uh, his wife comes out, she's just a little thing. And, uh, and so we, this cabinet's behind these doors. And so we're, we're kind of, you know, you don't want to touch someone else's doors. You don't want to just start moving stuff away. And, and so here's this little wife, and she's starting to try to move these heavy doors. And, and I'm like, well, somebody should help her because this big husband is just watching. He's kind of indifferent towards the whole thing. And then we get to this cabinet, and he's just sitting there watching us. I'm like, I'm thinking he's got a sore back. But no, he's moving some other stuff a little bit. He's just, but he's just not helping with this cabinet. Who's was very indifferent to what was going on. And here we were struggling with this thing. And you had the wife who was really kind of into this, and she's trying to help and and, and, and kind of be a help, and um, and she's kind of focused on this thing, and here's an indifferent husband. Kind of two different approaches. There There was something that needed to be done. He was indifferent, and she was focused. She was trying to do something about it. And so that's kind of how people approach sin. Some are very indifferent. Others are focused. They're trying to deal with the situations in their life. And so the question comes to you this morning, which one are you? But something happened when we loaded the cabinet up. As we lifted it up as a black cabinet, and there was something on the cabinet you could not see because of the darkness of the cabinet. And it was a nail. And it just ripped me right here. And I thought later, I thought, that's a lot like sin. It looks good. But when you engage in it, it's going to rip you. Part of God's concern about our attitude to sin is an attitude of love. He doesn't want you to get ripped, He doesn't want you to get torn. And so some guys, some people look at God as some killjoy. Like, God doesn't want me to have any fun. I would submit to you that the heart of God's in play here, He doesn't want you to get hurt. And so this sin isn't just some cosmic killjoy. It's not that at all. It relates to His nature, which we're going to look at more, that He is light, but it also comes from a heart of God who doesn't want you to get hurt. He doesn't want you ripping your life apart. and doesn't want you to experience pain. But if we don't see sin rightly, we're going to pay for it. W.S. Plummer, who's written several good books, so one of the things I remember he wrote, he said, we never see sin aright, Unless we see it's against a holy God. And I would submit to you that's a key, key key, truth of what's trying to come across here. You and I can't see sin rightly unless we see it's against a holy God. It's not a a cultural norm, it's not what society puts forth as right and wrong. Sin is against a holy God. And if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie. We do not live by the truth. But there's a second claim, or the contrast here is this image of light versus darkness. It's highlighted again. The result of living in darkness is that it makes fellowship with God impossible. And since human sinfulness inevitably interrupts a personal relationship between man and God, conversing, conversely, verse 7, but if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son, cleanses us from all sin. In other words, don't claim to be a Christian and walk in darkness. If you want to have fellowship with God, walk in the light. It's like we've saying a lot this morning already about living in the light, not in the darkness. And notice that this idea of living in the light means there's a connectedness to, to Him who is light. Again, His character determines the conditions of fellowship. I'd also submit to you, notice that it also affects our relationship with other people. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Kind of a, something we forget about. And, but also there's this assurance of our sin being effectively and repeatedly removed. A second claim we find. If we say that we have no sin, verse 8, and again notice his opponents here again had these false views on sin. This was dealt with one of them. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. This word, this, this phrase, no sin, is really this idea of possessing a sinful character. A sinful disposition. If we say we don't have a sinful character, if we say we have no spirit or sinful disposition, we lie. We're deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. And if it's not bad enough claim we to claim to have fellowship with God while actually living in darkness. Now they go further and claim to be sinless. They didn't need to be purified from every sin because in their mind, they didn't have any. They didn't have a sinful disposition and thus they didn't sin. They were without sin. And really, if you think about today, it's kind of scary a little bit because people don't have sin today. They have mistakes. They have sickness. But very few people are willing to call it what it is. Sin. We don't like to do that. It was interesting, there's studies, and one of them I came across a while ago was a study about those in mental institutions. And the study came to the grips to the terms that I think it was like 70%, it, either way, it was very high, of those who were in these mental institutions wouldn't be there if they could learn to do something forgive. I thought that was interesting. Very interesting. In other words, they were tie- tying those who were in there to a behavior, a moral behavior, that if they would exercise it, would have set them free. Pretty interesting. And I think God's saying the same thing. If you and I would learn to see sin as it really is, and then we can begin to find steps towards freedom. And that's the mindset. When our mindset is we don't sin, there's two things going on according to this passage. We deceive ourselves. In other words, there's a deliberate refusal to face the facts. We practice self-deception. That's why if you've ever talked to somebody who's like, boy, where, where are they coming from? Oftentimes, especially in regard to sin, they've deceived themselves. There's self-deception involved. And when you're deceived, that means you're not seeing your truth rightly. And we're told that also this synonymous with this is the truth is not in them. They're living by a lie. It's interesting, the truth is not in us. By implication, it's the lie that's in us at that point. We're not in fellowship with God. There's broken fellowship. We're not operating by the truth. We're operating by the lie. And who's the father of all lies? Satan. So you could really say when we live... Not by the truth, but by the lie. There's satanic, there's demonic activity around us that we are beginning to believe the lie. It becomes a truth issue. Now he goes on to this contrast. Having described his claim to be without sin, now there's this conditional contrast. If we say we've not sinned, verse 8, we're deceiving ourselves, the truth is not in us, but here's the but. But if we confess our sins by implication, acknowledging we have them, He is faithful and He's righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now if we confess our sin and acknowledge our sin, there's two character qualities of God that are brought into play. Notice His faithfulness. We see it right there verse 9. He's faithful and he's righteous. Interesting, those words were terms used in the Old Testament to refer to how God approached his covenant. He's faithful to keep his covenant. He was righteous in keeping his covenant. And here we see those same words that really speak to covenant. And so God in his relationship, he's faithful and he's righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. I thought it was interesting that those two were used. Forgiveness and cleansing—it made me ask the question: Why? Well, it brings these two things into play. One of the things about that is forgiveness of sin is this whole idea of a sin, which is an offense to God. But sin, our sin, isn't just an offense to God; it's also a stain—a stain in that there's guilt, and that there's shame. Our hearts are stained, and we're told that God forgives, but He also purifies us cleanses us from that stain of sin in our life in other words his forgiveness is complete it's complete and it's a beautiful thing now this thing about confession is not a light thing so I don't want to fly over it the first thing we know about confession is that it involves belief Confession always involves belief. It's a belief about God, that He's light, that He's holy. It's also a belief about our sin, that our sin is not that. It's ugly, and our sin's against a holy God. It involves belief. If we confess without even trying to enter into an understanding of the depth of our sin, we deceive ourselves. And so confession involves belief. Confession also involves recognition. Involves recognition of our inadequacy, it involves recognition of our need that we have nothing within ourselves to do anything about the situation we're in. It involves recognition. It's being honest with God. It's being honest with ourselves. God, we've sinned, our sins against you, a holy God, and there's nothing within me that can change this scenario. I'm guilty. Period. I have no excuses. I have nothing to offer you for forgiveness. I'm guilty. That's confession. No excuses. Not someone else's fault. It's not society's fault. It's not because everyone else is doing it. <laughs> no, it's acknowledging that we blew it, that we sinned, and that there is nothing we can do within us to get to find forgiveness. And we're not surprised then. Confession involves repentance. It's an intentional, willful turning away from sinful practice. Confession isn't about saying I am sorry. And then going to do what I want again. That's not confession. It's certainly not repentance. Repentance comes to God, acknowledges our sinfulness, and then makes a huge U turn and says, God, I'm now going to practice the truth. I'm now going to walk in the light. By your power and your grace, I'm turning away from this sin, no longer practicing it. I'm going to walk in the light. That's repentance. And if that's not taking place, your confession is meaningless. Confession involves belief, acknowledgement or recognition, and repentance. And how you and I view confession reveals how we view God. If we view that God is light, it will affect our confession. We'll have the right belief, the right recognition. And repentance will be a part of it so we can walk in light because His character sets the condition for what it means to live in fellowship with God. And God is faithful to His promises of mercy to the repentant sinner. And God is righteous in how he deals with the confessing sinner. There's a third claim though. Those two aren't bad enough. They say, if we say we have not sinned, verse 10, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. Now the third version is false teaching about the unimportance of sin. It's a present expression that says we have not sinned. Now this is pretty clear cut and maybe seems the most clear cut. And a description of his consequences, the most grave. We've made him out to be a liar. Now this is pretty close to verse 8. Verse 8 says, we say we have no sin, but this is different here. Verse 8 talks about the principle of sin. We do not have sin. That's kind of what their claim was. This is a little different. This saying, we have no expression of any sinful acts. One talks about the condition... We have no sin within us. We don't have this, uh, this law of sin at work with us. That was their first claim. This one says we don't have any expression of sin in our life. There's no sinful acts. We do not have sin. Now to deny this fact of sin in one's own life is to deny the holy and forgiving nature of God. It is to arouse in Him, this, what arouses in Him this holy wrath is this idea of falsehood and lies and that's why he says what he does. We make him to be a liar. We're saying, God, you're the one who said we're sinful people. You're lying because we don't sin, is what they were saying. God, you're the one who said a redeemer needed to come, and then all them sacrifices in the Old Testament pointed to a redeemer coming. You're a liar because we don't need a redeemer. That's what they were saying. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? I mean, it makes you want to duck. <laughs> that's what they were doing. You make him out to be a liar. And so these claims they make are very serious claims. That's why John's really concerned about this. And that's why he then talks about the provision for sin. And I love the way he begins verse 1, and we need to note it. Little children, it has this idea of dear children. It's It's a word of intimacy. And there would be a difference if you walked up to your child and said, child, but if you walked up to your child and said, dear child, your children would receive it differently, they would hear it differently, and you would be considerably more intimate in your address to them. That's what John's doing. He says, my dear children, I'm writing these things to you, that you may not sin. In other words, all these claims, they're wrong. You do sin. And I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. And if, anyone's, and if anyone does sin, and we'll stop there for a moment, springing from verse 10 is this purpose in really writing this. As he deals with the problem of sin. If anyone should sin, God's made a provision. Now John's been encouraging his hearers and us, at this point, to renounce sin. But he also recognized that sin is an ever-present reality and possibility for the believer. I mean, John could have come across and just hammered him. But he clarifies this whole issue of sin... But he also understood we live in a sinful world and there's going to be times we legitimately blow it. But he wants them to know when we confess our sin properly, there's a provision for sin. And so he wants to encourage him in this. And so for the third time, he comes to this question of forgiveness. And in doing so, replies to these elite groups' claims to be free from sin. And so he says, my dear children... I write these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, he starts out with this, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so he says this provision for sin is threefold. He says the first thing, we have an advocate. You and I have one who pleads our defense. He pleads our case. He goes before the Father. He doesn't proclaim we're innocent because we're not, we're guilty. He doesn't even come before the Father and says they deserve mercy because we don't. That's not what he pleads. His case is built on the applying his death to our sin. You see in our need of divine forgiveness, we have an effective intercessor to act for us, to present our case to the Father. We cannot do this ourselves since we are sinners, but the risen Christ does so on our behalf. It's a beautiful picture. Jesus intercedes actively in the presence of the Father for all those who call out to Him. And here these elitists were saying they had no sin. But John uses a judicial word. That's what advocate is. It's a judicial word. It's a judicial work of God where what he's saying is we're guilty. We're guilty of sin. There's no way around it. And we need an advocate. We need someone to plead our case because we got nothing to offer God. We are guilty. But what he's saying is we have an advocate. It's Jesus. And he comes before the Father and pleads your case and mine. And what's it based on? What does is, what is Jesus come and plead our case? What's, what's his pleading based on? We see it. He goes on to say, And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. What's it based on? Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. Now, I thought it was interesting. It, it doesn't say Christ, the Righteous One. It doesn't say Jesus, the Righteous One. It says Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. And as I thought about why, words strike me, it struck me that I had to go back to these dosisists And these Gnostics who didn't really believe Jesus had come in the flesh. And by using his name Jesus, it was almost another dig. The historical Jesus. This pre-existent incarnate Jesus. That's who I'm talking about. And so already he's putting another little dig and making sure that I understood the historical Christ. He's the righteous one. And this whole idea of righteous emphasizes his ability to approach God on our behalf. I.e. he's qualified, we're not. He's qualified to approach the Father. Praise God, He's qualified because there was no other hope for us. That's why we sing, We need Him. Jesus only, Jesus. Because He's the only one qualified. He's the righteous one. And He can plead a case on behalf of sinners because He's righteous. But He's not done. He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only. But also for those of the whole world. Your translation might say He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This word atonement, it's kind of helpful maybe to define it. It's the work Christ did in His life and in His death to earn our salvation, to put it simply. And there's four images you could say of atonement in the Bible. Propitiation's one of them, justification's another. Having an advocate in Jesus speaks to the fact that we're justified. It takes us this image into the courtroom. But propitiation takes us before an altar. In the Old Testament, the priests had to come before an altar, sprinkle it with blood so our sins would be covered. Atonement has this idea of covering. Hiding sins. This propitiation, it's a long word, it means to satisfy God's holy wrath. The one thing that we don't, I think, grasp well is that God's wrath is against all sin and it's a holy wrath. This isn't a God who's ticked off, out of control. This isn't some knee-jerk reaction God has to sin. In His holy wrath, because He's light, all sin against Him must arouse His holy wrath. Because of the nature of it. He's holy, and sin arouses his holy wrath, and his wrath's against all sin. And he uses this word propitiation because Jesus comes as a sacrificing, sacrificing priest in the temple. And so he uses sacrificial language. The Old Testament speaks a lot about these sacrifices that would made that would cleanse the sinner, that would appease God's wrath. These, these sacrifices were continual, and if they didn't offer them, they were in big trouble. But Jesus came as a propitiation of our sins. He offered Himself once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. He only needed to do it once because it was a perfect sacrifice. And He came before the altar of God and offered Himself for you and I. And He became their propitiation. And in the propitiation, God needed to be satisfied and Christ took the initiative in satisfying its all grace from beginning to end. 1 Peter 4.10, I'm sorry, 1 John 4.10, later in this book. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. It's not because it started with us. All love starts with Him. And the evidence of that is he became a propitiation of our sins. And so John's not just content though to say Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but he adds also for the sins of the whole world. Now, if you're a Calvinist and if you're an ultra Calvinist, you don't like these words because you're like, no, he only died for the elect. I mean, Christ's death was just for the elect, just for that group of people. You would be wrong. His death was for, and it says right there, the sins of the whole world. But this isn't universalism in that all people's sins are automatically forgiven. Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world because His death was sufficient to deal with the sins of the whole world. But His sacrifice does not become effective until faith is exercised. And there's teaching called this particular redemption or limited Redemption that speaks to Christ's death being sufficient only for the elect. But that's not what this is saying. It's sufficient to deal with the sins of the whole world. But there must be faith exercised to appropriate that personally. His death benefits, they're available to the whole world. But they must be accepted by faith to gain its benefits. But one of the beautiful summaries, I think, of this teaching right here is that it's God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. It's God Himself who in holy love undertook to do the propitiating because there's nothing we had to offer. And it's God Himself and the person of His Son who died for the propitiation of our sins. I can't emphasize it enough. It's from grace to grace. It's all about Him. we got nothing to bring to the table. That's why we come confessing our sin. It's believing it's against the holy God. It's recognizing and acknowledging there's nothing we can do about it. It's calling upon Him in repentance. That's what this text is talking about. He deals with sin, but he deals with the, the provision for our sin. And it really calls us to apply this in a couple of ways. And I think these are things we, should take, we need to take out of here, especially as we continue through this book. And I've said this a couple of times, but I think it's important we hang on to it by way of principle. The nature of God determines the conditions of fellowship with Him. You don't determine it. You don't say, I can have fellowship with God and do what I want. No. The character of God, He's light, determines the conditions of fellowship, and that is walking in the light. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus purifies us from all our sins. nature of God determines the conditions of fellowship with Him. The second principle, for fellowship with God to be maintained, there must be honest confession of sin. Not to man, not to a priest, but to God, the high priest, Christ. For fellowship with God to be maintained, there must be honest confession of sin. And number three, confession of sin must be specific, not general. In other words, don't wash over your sin, don't gloss it over, call it what it is. Because Jesus didn't die for mistakes. He died for sin. We need to take it seriously and call it what it is and to be specific. Now I'm going to add a fourth one because I can There's only one provision for sin. One. The atoning death of Jesus Christ. It's the only provision for sin. No moral modification is going to pull it off. No association with a certain church or certain group is going to do it. The only provision for sin is the atoning death of Christ. That's John's claim it's what God says, and if you and I want to live an overcoming and assured life, these are principles we must apply. Let's pray. Father, it's been my hope that somehow, some way, through these lips um, would come your truth. And that all of us here would hear clearly that we are in desperate need of forgiveness. And that our sin is no light thing. It's against the holy God. Please sink that deep in our spirit. We do not want to be deceived, God. We don't want to uh, walk in falsehood. We want to walk in fellowship with you. Day by day, God. And so open our eyes this morning that we could see truth. And open our hearts that we can embrace You. Our provision. Help us to see a new God. The incredible work at Calvary. And all that it means to us. Lord, might the result be a greater desire for us to walk in the light. Lord, we be quick to confess when we sin. And Lord, that we would worship you because of what you've done for us. I ask Holy Spirit you'd do that work in us, in me. We say thank you this morning, Jesus, for loving us and for dying for us. For not giving up on us. Thank you for making a way that we could know and walk with you and live with you for all of eternity. It's your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.